selling houses, I'm helping people find apartments, and I was miserable. I was miserable. I had money, but I was barely seeing my child. I was not making any music. And my ex-husband called me one day and he said, look, I didn't support you in our marriage, but why don't you let me support you now? Let me let me have our son. Let him come home with me to North Carolina. What's up, everybody? It's Willie and Alex from the Black Culture Podcast. I know you're ready to get into this video, but before you do that, make sure to subscribe to our channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Culture Podcast. Enjoy the video. We as African-Americans, we go into places thinking that we have to adjust and adapt the way mm -hmm. we speak. Yeah, white people don't have to code switch. I just, we just no said such, that. Yeah. Even, there is no such thing as a code switch definition definition for a person who's of white Anglo-Saxon, you know, yeah. um, orientation. But I'll say this much: um, the, you know, there's certain generations of us, and, and also people from a certain geography who have certain experiences with hair, and. You know, he's he's Southern, this is horrible, because this is not indicative of all Southern Blacks, but he's old school Southern Black. Mm -hmm. And for them, polish and shine means everything. If, you know, for a long time, they were trying to outlive the fact that they could run fast and play the fiddle. Being a musician, being a um, an entertainer, all those different things were, were, were negative. And some of them still speak badly about that. That's not something to want to aspire to be. And so you have... Folks who, you know, I, I went to college at North Carolina Central University and I have friends of mine whose parents threatened to throw them out of their house because they decided to lock their hair and thought they were converted to another religion. It's amazing what we have tied up in here. I mean, recently we had a black girl spray paint her hair with, with Gorilla Glue to make sure that she had the polished look so she could be the perfect ideal, you know, in the presence of the children that she taught. That's, I've not heard anyone go there. That was a great point. I've never heard no, anyone use that point that you just made. I never even thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. think, think, think about our, our beginnings and how important it was for us to be seen a specific way by certain people, particularly white. We wanted to be seen as equal, not accepted for what we are, but equal so that we could get into these white spaces. And so you have folks who, you know, nearly burned their scalps with lie and pressed their hair out and burned the back of their necks to make sure that they could get into certain spaces. Certain black churches would not let you in if you had a particular curl pattern or a specific complexion. Some of these same vestiges of like triggers and you know oh, yeah. terrorists still exist in many of us. Like oh, him yeah. telling him that is not is not an act of love. He thinks he's loving him. Right. He but it's self-hatred. I read this book my father gave me called Our Kind of People. Mm -hmm. and talk about the black elite all over america and yeah. a lot of them were were here in our city and you weren't getting into and these were black circles from the links to 100 black men and all of that you weren't getting in unless your skin was a certain color and yeah. as a as a kid my both of my grandparents were white i mean not white very light right in fact my grandfather had blue eyes i remember them telling me get out the sun because you don't mm -hmm. get too dark. And they don't were get too dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they they were from the from the, the deep south. So when they moved up north, they carried that mentality with them. And so mm -hmm. a lot of us, our parents, our grandparents, uncles, they think that we still have to cower to white society and white privilege. And I'm like, no, you don't, because guess what? The more and more you do that, they're never gonna learn who we are. 
the more and more that we go in thinking we got to talk a certain way, wear our hair a certain way, dress a certain way, they're not going to get used to how black people are. And then you go on to the next person, that person thinks they got to come in and do the same thing when we should not have to. Well, you know, I think what's incredible right now is that we've never been in a better time to be unapologetically black. And yep. all those things that it means. But now as we do that, we should be concerned about the about what we're saying. So if I'm aware of my locks, then they have to be polished. Like I heard you gentlemen talking about that. And so my son, who's nine years old, is locking now. And I have the same conversations with him. I said, look, when you walk into the school and he goes to predominantly, predominantly white school in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and he's wearing locks. And so I said, when you walk in there, be who you are, but make sure that you are the best of who we are as you do it wash your hair, oil those locks before you walk in there, represent yourself like you care about your details for yourself. Because ultimately you are representing something that's unseen. You, you are the first in line to show somebody else that this can be done the way you're doing it. And if anybody tries to make you feel like there's something wrong with you, you continue to lift your head up high, but there is a certain way that I feel like we need to continue to present ourselves as we present our unapologetic selves. Absolutely. Now, you know, I'm going to have to get into something. And okay. I remember uh, I was talking to a guy I used to work with, black dude, but he sent his son to a predominantly private all-white school. And he was like, yeah, man, my son came home with a white girl. I said, what do you expect? I said, yeah. send him to school with all these white kids. You know, attraction is attraction. So I, I got to ask you, mm -hmm. Atlanta is considered black Mecca. Mm -hmm. What was the reason for you sending your son to a predominantly white school? Well, I'm a co-parent, so I share a child with someone. And my partner thought that it was the best. Miles? Miles, is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes, okay. yes, my baby boy, Miles. Um, I'm lucky my son is unapologetically Black. He's not the dude who's code switching in there. And he, we're blessed that he does go to a school that's more, let's say, of a, more of considered a hippie school environment where they call their teachers by their first name. I don't know how I feel about that. But um, he... He's even gone as far as to say, I don't want to be called by the name Miles in this environment. I want everybody here to call me Kofi, which is his Ghanaian name. So he's he is the one fighting and making sure his identity is sticking. Now, that. yeah, it's he and one other black girl in his class of seven. So you can imagine that there are little girls that my son likes who are not black girls. Um, I think he's cognizant of that. You know, he, he's the guy that likes the exoticals in his class. I don't know. Um, I feel like this, and it's an ongoing conversation I'm having with myself about race all the way around. What type of world do I really want to live in? And in that world where I want people to see me as human, um, isn't, isn't the greatest example of that actually happening? People who see one another and they don't see each other in that way and they decide yeah. to love in spite of whatever you know in spite of color in spite of class in spite of orientation whatever that may be don't I want that for my child um in the same breath I also make, make it my responsibility to make sure he's in rites of passage programs during the summer that he gets a steady diet of beautiful black girls and women in his life so he's a rainbow coalition of love but that's because I recognize it's my responsibility to keep him immersed in the culture from which he comes from you know last year um, I took him to Ghana where he got his naming ceremony and met all of his Ghanaian family members and sat and hung in, in company with his Ghanaian family. And he came back Kofi. That was his choice. 
And every day and everywhere he goes, he knows that that's who he is. I think it's really the responsibility of the parents to make sure that their children are exposed to beautiful black spaces, which are the best representation of, the, of a mirror of themselves. Then you can raise an unapologetically black child in, a, in an all white school and it doesn't really matter. Willie, I told you it's gonna be fireman. So look, she literally we, just like <laughs> we had when we had conversations about building the foundation. She literally just gave an example of what she's doing to build a foundation. Yeah, to build a foundation. So we're gonna get into you. We gotta tell you, we've been looking forward to this interview for two weeks. <laughs> yes, me too. And I'm so sorry we didn't we weren't able to do the other one. I'm just glad we're together now. I am. I'm glad we're together. And uh, I gotta tell you. We listened to you on Clubhouse last night, and I listened to your album, and uh, I got to tell you, that album is a vibe. Oh, thank you. That album is a vibe, the ceremony. It took me on a journey. And so tonight, we want you to take us on a journey. We want to dig into Yazra St. James. But before we do, let's toast it up. Absolutely. Let's. Cheers, y'all. Cheers. <laughs> So let's get into it. Um, considered by many music insiders to possess one of our generation's greatest voices, Yazara has simultaneously been compared to many Ripperton, Grace Jones, and Tina Turner. Wow. Yazara's performances are effortlessly electric. She encompasses the tenderness of Adele and the fierceness of Stevie Nicks. She is a diva with healing power. She is the archetype of an urban pop Joan of Arc with the audacity of Prince. She has shared the stage with The Roots, Anderson Pot, Bilal Oliver, Alice Smith, Chance the Rapper, and toured with Lenny Kravitz. Yazra St. James, welcome to the Black Culture Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here with y'all. So take us on a journey. Mm -hmm. Who is, now I read your bio and whoever wrote it needs a Grammy on their own, but okay. tell us who is Yazra St. James. Um, Yazara is her mother's only daughter, um, a daughter of DC, but a child of Ghana, West Africa, a mother. Uh, I've been a midwife, meaning as a collaborative partner musically to a lot of people's favorites. And so I'm some people's favorite singers, favorite singer. Um, Yazara is a spiritualist who understands that my gifts are divine. And so I've never had to have a persona in order to will them. Um, and Yazara is a person who I think is important to love. And that's the essence from which my music comes from. Wow, so take us back to the beginning. You have a, mm -hmm. a really interesting story. Ghanaian-American, mm -hmm. your dad was from Ghana, right? So yes. what was it like growing up in that setting and also discovering your musical talents? It's, it's interesting that you would ask me. I, I did not meet my father till I was 14 years old. Um, the first man who raised me, the first man who I fell in love with as my father uh, was a gentleman who was a former a member of the Black Panthers and later a member of the Black Liberation Army who um, in the 80s realized that he hadn't been trained to do anything that was gonna feed his children and enrolled into the army and flew his daughter to Washington, to Germany, where I lived in the 80s pop era, and got a chance to fall in love with George Michael and Tina Turner and Chuck Maggione and Angela Bofield and Parliament Funkadelic and Sly Stone and Jimi Hendrix. 
while listening to his records. Um, he taught me how to put the needle on the groove when I was five years old so I could listen to records. And he's the man I call father. Um, he was not a perfect man, so I was in a household of abuse, but my solace became music. And um, my mother who loved music and wanted to be a singer herself always allowed me to be free to perform that music and to be in spaces where I could kind of be free to just discover that art was healing for me. Uh, whether that was dance or theater or voice, I was in an environment uh, where I was kind of, I was really encouraged to bloom into what I am uh, by my mother and my father, at least in my early life. And um, growing up in that household with, you know, this beautiful soul, which is my mom, whose mother was a concert pianist who gave up music when she had to be, when she was pregnant with her, uh, who allowed me to live out my life was really, really special. My mom, uh, when she was 12 years old, asked my great grandmother if she could learn how to play the piano and she wouldn't got the family ax and chopped the piano to pieces because she was so heartbroken about my grandmother getting pregnant with her and having to give up her scholarship for music. And so I guess growing up in my household, I was really blessed to have somebody who just didn't want me to be a victim of oppression, like generational oppression, passing the hurt, passing the pain, put me in a position to win by just letting me pursue what made me happy. So do you feel Did like- Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you def definitely answered my question. <laughs> Man, that was, that was, so it's it's pretty much like the the generational, as I call it, because I try to make sure I'm doing this with my family. It sounds mm -hmm. like the generational curse was, he didn't allow that to get to you. And it seems like now we were talking before we started that now you're installing that in motherhood now, making sure what you learned, you're taking it to, to cater to your son, to make sure, to build the foundation, mm -hmm. to make sure he can be the best version of himself. So- so explain to me, like, like, how did you really like, how did music like affect you like positively? Like, was it, you said it was your way to, to get away, to, to mm -hmm. get out. So just explain that passion for music. Like when you, when you're getting ready to write a song or you're getting ready to like, what's on your mind when you getting ready to, to write a song or like what's going on in your mind? You know what? If I can interject, Willie, just to go along with your question. Go ahead. She said it was a way for her to get away, but get away from what? Mm -hmm. Oh, to get away from what? So, um, and it's funny, you know, when you tell these stories, especially when you're beyond them, you know, I don't want to tell them in a way where I'm like still attached to to the experiences. I want to I want to speak about them in a way that speaks of me being victorious over them. Uh, but I was a bullied child. And I also growing up in Washington DC after returning from being in Germany, which was such like a, a nurturing environment, despite the things going on between my parents, you know, in their own marriage, I was in a, in a nucleus of like real love, you know, taking dance, being celebrated for my gifts, being told I was beautiful by Germans and all the people on my base and just people who appreciated me for my mind and, and how articulate I was and that I love books and then coming back home to DC and being discriminated against by my own people because of the color of my skin and having very 
deliberate and horrible things done to me by other children and adults because of phrases like this, which I heard was stop, stop acting like your light skin, stay in your, stay in your place. Um, I mean, I could get into the specifics of things, but let's just talk about being thrown down steps and your locker set on fire for being too articulate. Um, these were my experiences and they weren't, they, it was racism. It was skin on skin violence by my own folk. And so when I was saying, people would listen and people would treat me as if I was important to them. Um, early on in church, I would sing and it would fill me up with a very specific feeling because I knew I was being used to do something great. And at the time of, in other spaces, I wasn't being told I had anything great to contribute. And so singing was an aspect of, of something that, that filled my personal intention and made me feel like I was good at something. The arts do that for children. And I feel like in that way, music saved me. When I was in church, I recognized my voice had a power to, to, to change a heart. When I was on stage, I recognized that that made me feel good because it was something I was rewarded with positive reinforcement for, not the rest of what I was. So that's the thing to get, that was the thing to get away from the part where I was invisible because of my color and spaces of color. Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I feel like mm -hmm. you are healed from it, but there's so many of us still going through that. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, it's funny growing up as a young black man, I never realized what young black women went through, right? As black men, we're not necessarily told that. And my, my mother's dark skinned. So, you know, she grew up in the 60s and 70s. And so I can only imagine what she went through. But, right. So, you know, I feel like when those stories are shared, it enlightens us. And now I pay attention. And I would say probably within the past five years, a lot of the things that's been going on with women behind closed doors, mm -hmm. us men don't necessarily know about it if you're not directly involved. And so now that's opened up my eyes to see further than just what's on the surface you know this is mm -hmm. why someone may act the way they act or why they they might be discouraged about this or affected mm -hmm. by it right so your music um and i noticed especially when you're on clubhouse you pay particularly close attention to your energy don't you yeah, I've learned, you know, I mean, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's, who's younger than me about how over time you start to recognize how to use your energy, what deserves your energy, you know, um, and also uh, who, who it's a benefit to be around because they lift the vibration of your world. I'm very, I, I'm very, very uh, deliberate about curating my, my friendships and about my space. So high school now, right? Let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's delve back into high school because I feel like you recognize your gift early. You use it as a healing mechanism. Mm -hmm. But now you're, are you at this point seeing it as a career? You know, it's so interesting. I think I always knew that in some way I would be connected to the arts. I thought I was going to be a dancer. Uh, I was a ballerina for a long time. I was in a, a couple of dance companies. I danced until I graduated from high school, but I always sung. Uh, I sung at church, I sung at school. And then um, of course I ended up getting a, 
a full invite to go to Duke Ellington School of Performing Arts, which is a public school for me since I lived in DC. And I was so happy to finally be in space with people who were like myself that I got there three hours early, my first day of school and cried on the front steps like a big old baby because I was in space with the other weirdos. You know what I mean? And I was an awkward black girl who loved art and loved rock and roll and loved, you know, soul music and wanted to sing opera. And I was finally home. I had actually started cutting school at, the, at my junior high school, Alice Deal, and spending so much time at Duke Ellington before I went there that I'd already starred in one musical before I started going to the school. No one asked any questions. And I ended up uh, starring in their play there. So it was, um, it was a turning point for me because I was someplace where I could use that thing that made me not be invisible to truly bloom. What did you do in that performance? And, and when you say you were in the play, what did you do? Okay, so Duke Ellington was the, the breeding ground for so much amazing talent. I had a friend of mine named Rockies Petrie. Um, and he was an older kid in, in the school who wrote a play called Melindy, which was a modern day adaptation of Cinderella. It was a black Cinderella. And so I played Melindy and uh, it was amazing. I did some real acting like I got my, um, my evil stepmother slapped the shit out of me on stage. And I had, it was a slap her around the world. And, you know, I really had a chance to dive into theater and to sing and to discover that I could do that too. And so I'm very excited about doing more than that. That's why it was so much fun to do. Uh, to play the part of Dorothy in The Wiz because I always wanted that role. So this uh, was before Brandy did it, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Mel Melindy was a play written by this young man himself, actually in the school. So, I mean, there have been lots of different adaptations of Cinderella, but this one is Black. This one is Black as fuck, specifically. Gospel, dysfunctional family members, very specific issues of um, of everything from drugs to violence where this, this girl was dealing with really specific things and then had her dreams come true. And I really loved the way that he wrote it. She was an, an orphan, her father died just like the original Cinderella, but she had you know this evil stepmother and two sisters who just had really low self-esteem and just hated her. And the way that they wrote about, you know, the way that this woman had to work several jobs and why these intricate issues with the sisters were present were, were very specific to the black experience in the way that one, in the way that they wrote The Wiz, you know, and, and The Wiz to me also was a love letter to black people about specific things. You have, you know, Dorothy who was in, in for lack of a better word, trying to figure out who she was. You know, you look at the beginning of the film, she has a, a sister who's there with her husband and they have a brand new baby. She got a younger sister who looks like she's there from college. She's there with her man and her grandmother's trying to hook her up with somebody. All she wants to do is find, what she, find out what she's made of. You know, and I, I would liken Melindy to another one of these stories that's about somebody finding out what they're made of. It was definitely his own adaptation, nothing like the Disney. You, you know, it was interesting. So we get, what's the word I'm looking for? fantasy movies that represent us, right? So America, Black Panther, and you being a daughter of Ghana, I always want to know why they don't give us our real stories and talk about our real greatness. When you see movies like Coming to America, Black Panther, with the fantasy versions of us versus the actual people who were in those positions factually and historically, how does that make you feel? And what do you think about that? 
Well, well, we are magical. I mean, even our real life stories are pretty magical. Um, three of the very first pharaohs of Egypt were all um, black women who were Kemetan. I mean, that's an incredible story. One of them was in fact, um, a Kandaiki warrior. Like when we think about these things, our stories are really amazing. And I say that because I'm segueing. I'm actually a part of the cast of the, but in the very first black, all black casted um, action adventure films that will be shot on all of the female pharaohs that uh, graced Egypt. And um, one of the uh, producers is Hill Harper. The other one is Rhonda Ross, daughter of Diana Ross. And the script was written by an incredible black artist named Kamiko Tarnes. And first we're doing an animated, not an animated series on it, as well as a comic novel. And then they're releasing the movie in three parts. Did so, we just get an exclusive? It. Pardon me? Did we just get an exclusive? <laughs> I mean, in a way, now that we've been talking about <laughs> it, but COVID derailed, you know, some of our filming and which is why now they're doing the comic and the, um, the animation novel. So I'm actually doing voiceovers for that this week. So the stories are coming and not just our own, you know, the stories are coming in not just our own. I hear about people everywhere writing amazing uh, stories. And so what if fantasy, if fantasy is the springboard, I mean, there's a such thing as white people been writing about fantasy forever. We can be in magical spaces and we can be in real spaces. What I really would like to see less of are these stories about our past, about our, our ancestors, our grands and our great grands. Uh, I would love to see them from a more Victoria's space because they had those stories. We can talk about some really amazing stories. On I almost fell out my chair when you said that. That's so true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, like either slavery or we getting shot and killed or murdered by the cops or something like that. You know what yeah. I mean? You're never going to see film of a white woman shot in the face or a black or a white man shot at close range. They're not even going to. They're not even going to do that on on television. With a, they're not. You're not going to see a black man do that to a white man on television or a white woman. But how many times do we see blatant, horrible acts of violence simulated over and over again, either in real life or on film that have to do with us? And they win awards for it. And they win awards, while, while racists get a hard on watching us <laughs> in cinema. Like, you know, the, maybe, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this, but one of my favorite movies was Django. I don't hear you not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of my favorite movies was Django because I was like, well, finally, you know, look at all this random ass violence. He's just, you know, bye bye, Miss Millie. You know, I'm just saying, you would have never seen anything like that before. And, and we ain't seen Quentin make a movie since that's gotten any real visibility. And, and now we see what happens when they do, or, or um, even though I'm not a big fan of the, the writer of this Birth of a Nation, was a very significant film. It showed black victory at a time when we've been told, that, I hate it when I hear people say, uh, I'm not like my ancestors. There are plenty of stories about our ancestors who fought back and won who took over plantations, you know, we don't even know if maybe some Africans might've got on a boat and came back looking for people whom they loved. We have no idea because the landscape is written by the people who, who feel as if they won. And I've been making sure that those stories don't get to people. We keep hearing all these, like if you Google, you know, black history now, they're, they're starting to have these really amazing stories that are starting to surface. I kind of like go down a rabbit hole sometimes and just start looking at these videos of newest, newer discoveries of really amazing, courageous black stories from, you know, a hundred years ago or 400 years ago, we're talking about, you know, slave revolts where, where folks got, not only got away, but got on a boat and went home. So I forgot my point, but what I'm saying is I just oh, want to see us, 
from a space where we're not dealing with so much black tragedy. We've seen enough slave films. Yeah, um, <laughs> you brought up a great point and I wanna get into this since you have, unfortunately in this country. So are you familiar with the Jewish birth, birthright? Um, no, please hit me. So in the Jewish community here, uh, I can't remember, I think it's up to a certain age, but you basically have your trip back to Israel funded from the moment you're born. Wow. Right? That's called the birthright. And going back to Marcus Garvey, where he believed all black people should go back to Africa, all the way up to time. Now I'm hearing Akon even say, y'all need to go back to Africa, right? Mm -hmm. When you saw Black Panther, you had first cousins who grew up in two completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. One of them full of love, one of them full of hatred because of the experiences. When you see that and you relate that to real life and growing up, we got no history about Africa. Like everything that I pretty much learned, I had to learn on my own. And because I also have African friends, I was able to get some of it firsthand. How do we bridge that gap and sort of reconnect? Because it's going to be like, I can look at Yazra, I can look at Willie, I couldn't tell if he was from Cleveland or if he was from Accra, right? Mm -hmm. I can't look at you and tell it's a cultural thing, but how do we bridge that gap and reconnect us back with African culture, with the homeland from whence we came in order to reestablish our identity? I think that's a personal journey for each and every person. I can't tell one person how they reclaim their identity. What I can say is, just like somebody gets on a plane and goes to Paris to expand themselves, somebody you should get on a plane and visit Ghana or visit South Africa or spend your summer in the Ivory Coast instead of going to that Daytona Beach or Miami and have your own experience. Um, when I went to Johannesburg for the first time, I was with Erica Badu and I was singing background with her. And I kind of got a chance to kind of glance in it. It was a different South Africa than um, it was now, now nearly 20 years ago. Uh, but three years ago, I went back and I had a chance to really spend some time there. I ended up actually um, renting a, a penthouse there for some time and going back and forth because I'm considering making South Africa another home of myself, of myself and my family. And I say that because, you know, the back to Africa, the visit Africa movement is is only a part of the next frontier, which is to consider Africa a new space for us to come and to assist and be a part of. Uh, there are places in Johannesburg that remind you of Miami, remind you of California, remind you of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, folks have amazing architecture and are starting businesses and happy to see black folk. And one of the things I loved about Johannesburg, and I'm speaking about that specifically, because of their experiences with apartheid, they understand fully the black experience along with what aligns them with Africa specifically. But they're very excited about being in concert with us um, and having us in those spaces. Um, there are still some, there's still some Africans who believe that they haven't quite connected to the black experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? Colonization has done a number on some spaces in Africa where, you know, I've had conversations with people who are my own relatives who say, I don't know what the real problem is with black Americans. You know, they should get over it. You know, we were colonized and we did just fine. Um, the level of colonization with which we experienced 
the the stealing away from home, the the stripping of actual culture, the not knowing where, where you are, the definition of humanity defined by your color is something they're never going to really understand. They're never really going to understand. So if you're going over there romanticizing that you're going to make some huge connection with specific spots of Africa because of your your shared oppression, you're not going to do that. You should go there to discover what it is you can create and you can share in with your present relevant story of now. Now, there are other spaces where you can go, like I said, South Africa, the Ivory Coast, where there's some spots where people really understand that. But I just feel sometimes like we romanticize, I'm gonna go to Africa and they're gonna totally understand us. You're going there to reconnect with yourself because you need to reconnect with yourself. That's something you can do right here on American soil. So I know you wanna get into more of her story, Willie, but I just gotta feed off of something she said real quick. When did you go to Africa for the first time and what was your experience? Mm -hmm. So I've been a number of times now. Um, my first experience was 20 years ago with Erica, but I was there for work. So I had I had the colonizer's experience because my dollar allowed me to colonize my experience. I, it was, I was at the top of the food chain because my dollar stretched. I wasn't having a true African experience. And I wanna be super clear about that. When the money runs out is when you really discover how people are really living and what they're really experiencing. And a lot of times, I know you want me to answer in one question, but I wanna say this. A lot of times we go over there, not for what we can give back to the African, but for how far this dollar can stretch and how much fun we can have. And that's where a lot of the new I'm going to Africa, I'm going to the year of return is coming from. Oh, I was over and I went to the Shea Butter Resorts and I went to, but did you go visit a, 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 a did you go visit one of these dirt heaps that people are living in? Did you go visit a school? Did you, did you go to the village? Right. Did you go to a village? Did, did you go uh, to a local church? and sing or contribute to a local school or send some kids to school, $1,000 to the life of a child can pay for their schooling for three years, you know, depending on where they are. Like, what are we contributing when we think about going back to Africa? But also in that space, what does it offer us that when we get there, we can expand on so that people can take the opportunity to consider another place home besides America? Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, you did. And you also gave a great answer because that's the answer that's never usually given. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know Africans from East Africa to West Africa to South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I think the unfortunate part, again, if you're Chinese, doesn't matter if you're in China or America, you're Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, Irish, I can be in Ireland or America, I'm still Irish. Unfortunately, when you're African, if you were born here, you're looked at differently, not oh, just yes. by the people here, but also by people over in Africa. And I think that the thing is, we've never had a conversation, right? So I, I got a buddy and uh, we actually had a, a lady on, she's a Black history professor at CSU here. And we talked about that when they come here, Whoever brings them here literally tells them don't talk to Black Americans. Yes. Right. The first thing. <laughs> yeah, that's one of and the And that first we're things. lazy and that we're going to drag them down. Yeah. Um, he yeah. said the exact same thing. And you said mm -hmm. something too because you you just said you don't have, you don't, you can find yourself and become one with your culture here. And I hear a lot of people say, I want to go to Africa or South Africa. So, 
I can be with my people so I can find myself, so I can find out about my You about to be sadly mistaken when you get off that plane and everybody has a lace front. <laughs> I'm just I'm just putting it out there. Like no, one thing right. I will say is that when I got off the plane in Ghana and I looked around at the billboards with people who were black like me, it was amazing. But also you're gonna see, you know, brown elbows and brown knuckles and brown knees from people who are bleaching because they want to assimilate a specific element of white culture or or have light skin privilege. That's exactly what I wanted to get into because a lot of them are bleaching their skin because they don't feel like they're good enough also because they're trying to fit in a white society, which is something we talked about earlier. Yeah, or not even that. They wanted a whole other type of privilege within their own social group where they don't want to feel invisible. Like we, we actually brought, that's actually a gift of ours. We brought over there. We like wow, I didn't think about that. Think about it. Like um, Nigeria and the Nollywood um, market, they have, a, for a long time, they had a whole string of videos where they had this girl that they called Beyonce. Because that became the new standard of black beauty in, in Nigeria for a moment. And people taking pills to bleach their unborn children to make sure that they have, like, these are things that, that folks have tried to do and, and nearly killed themselves you know, putting Clorox and saran wrap around their arms in order to try to bleach their skin. And this is in Africa where this shouldn't even be an issue. But on the other side of that, when I got off the plane in Ghana, I looked up and I saw myself. And that is incredible to be someplace where the the intensity of colorism isn't necessarily felt and where everybody there looks like you. So that's not the biggest issue you have to deal with. You know, blackness doesn't, the definition of blackness is not a conversation. Africans don't even call themselves black until they come over here. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to get into that um, <laughs> about the fact that even if you go to England, even if you go all over Africa, the Caribbean, nobody calls themselves black. We don't call ourselves <laughs> American, right? Simply mm-hmm. because we're not proud of the country because of all that's happened. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get your take on that. Like, African and American, but you have to be considered black. Is is that in a way we say we're black and proud, but at the same time, it's also in a way we feel some type of shame. We shouldn't. Everybody wants to be us. You go to Japan, they're singing gospel music, they're doing hip hop. You go to Africa, they open up stores where they call themselves niggas. There, the world is trying to catch up with the vibration of the black American. So I can answer that question really quickly. You know, there are some of us who feel shame, but we should look around at every place in the world. We can see our reflection. Now people will want to pretend because they love black culture, but hate black struggle. But ultimately we are the Rosetta Stone of culture. The black American, which has dealt with all of the worst that could happen to it, still being a child of Africa and America and all the other things that the world has mixed us up to be. And still black rises to the top to define everything from Latin America to Asian culture. So, you know, I don't walk with any shame, even though people who are African like me have occasionally been like sucks to be you, you don't speak tree. Like you want to sing gospel. Do you know how to run? Y'all weren't born with that gift. You had to listen to Kim Burrell to get that. She's from Texas. Yo, that was cold. <laughs> I, I, I got to repeat that. She literally just said we are the Rosetta Stone of culture. I'm she just gave that. us an old clip. That's the clip right there. I believe that in my heart. You know, it's, it's like when 
uh, Nina Simone said, I believe that black people are the most beautiful people in the world, but they don't even know it. Drops mic. Wow. Mic, mic drop. That's it. That's it. She said it. Black people. She didn't say African people. She didn't say Latin people. She didn't say she's talking about for her us. And we this is a this is a understanding. A rhema is a Greek word for true for true understanding. This needs to be rhema to us. That there is nothing to be ashamed of. That Africans loved us and that they missed us and that that energy still traveled to us and that because of that part of us, we became something even bigger. I'm not happy that my family members were forced into this country, but I'm so glad that because of our African blood, we were able to turn the worst thing that ever happened to us into something that the whole world wanted to be. That's Black people. We did that shit. Nobody else. And it's, it's first off, I'm going to give you a hand because that, listen, but it's funny you brought up something earlier. You said other cultures want to be us. Alex, I don't know if you've seen it, but I watched a, a TikTok video earlier. It was a lady sitting in a chair, black lady. Mm -hmm. So they began to peel off. It was fake. It wasn't a, a black lady. They began to peel off the skin. It was a white woman. She dressed herself up like a whole black lady. I'm talking about from her legs to everything. Like, and everybody mm -hmm. was like shocked. Like, why would you do that? And you just broke it down. Like, every day they, they want to be us. Blackfishing is is... To me, symptomatic of people who want to get back to that original vibration, because science even dictates that the very first DNA of the world was found in Africa. And I've been to Alexandria, so I know what those people look like, and they're Black and beautiful, and they're us, and they're the start. And from that, the whole world came. And so a lot of what even I think is perceived feigned white supremacy is about is their real feelings of inferiority, because they really want to get back to the vibration that they came from. They can't understand why they did the worst to us and we keep rising. And then they realize it's that, ah, oh, it's that fucking vibration that, that I'm no longer a part of. And, and I hate these people for having it. And then they have nerve to be benevolent and loving and, and, and want to see everybody do well. Here it is, you have these poor Asian women shot in a nail salon and the people leading the rallying cry for a hold up. We know what it's like to be marginalized. The new conversation needs to be what's going on with white terrorism is us. Us first. We have always been the people who step up and say, this isn't right. We've always been the race that welcomes everybody. We've always been the people who have been the, the race of the race of healing. Yeah, no, um, mm -hmm. I was telling Willie this story. I went to the gym and this white girl with the fakest ass that you can ever imagine trying to get her body to look like black woman. And I said, I wonder if she won't want our want our struggle too. Like, cause don't don't yeah, just, don't just have half of it. Take it all, right? Yeah. <laughs> take, take it all. Because if you really want, like, they want to move like us, they want our swagger, they want to talk mm -hmm. like us, they want to walk like us, they want to dance like us, they wish they could mm -hmm. sing like us and everything that well, we they, do. they can do all those things now. They're doing them. They're doing them. And I don't care that they're doing them. I just want them to remember where they came from. Where's our royalty? That royalty for you getting all this amazing stuff from the Rosetta Stone of culture, which is us, is simply being an ally, living in it. You want that big fake ass? I'm here for it. Just when you see black women being marginalized and mistreated with those same natural black asses and lips and colors, I just want you to step up and say, that's not right. I want you to say to your racist white uncle, hey, 
You know, <laughs> I want you to step up as a person who is a purveyor of culture and also be an advocate of the people with whom you are borrowing and also appropriating from. That's it. I'm cool. I, I'm not angry as long as you know, as long as you know how to be humble and helpful. Man. It's asking for a lot, but okay. <laughs> I, 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 I used to think so, but I, I've also met some people who have really like put their lives on the line along with me, Latin, Black, you name it. And um, I have, I'm, it's an everyday struggle for myself to deal with my own prejudices. And, and I'm one of those people who, who still says, you know, it, Black people can't really be racist when all decks are stacked against us in this country where I can have a gun in my face, in my mouth, in front of my mom tomorrow for nothing. Where I could see a Black man, you know, die on national television for nothing. Uh, but at the same time, isn't a symptom of the change we desire having people who want to assist and those people are existing. Most of them are millennial. You know, I'm 42 years old. I don't lie about my age. I'll be 43 this year. Uh, I see a marked difference in the generation 20 years behind me. I've watched these kids on television turn in their racist family members or read them on screen for white privilege. And we want that, right? I feel like we want that. And in order to continue to have that, we have to allow ourselves to be in space with these people and even to transform how we feel about them. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, one day this is going to be a soundbite, but fuck it. That doesn't mean that that's transformed my relationship with trust with white people. That's going to be a minute. That's, that's, that is just what it is. And in relationships I have with people who are not Black folk, who are white folks, I've been honest about that. God's still dealing with me. Help me to deal with that by being the advocate you say you are when you see horrible things happening. That helps my trust. And I do feel like Black people are worthy of being able to say, hey, y'all are going to have to earn my trust. Just like you said, I, I, don't, I don't believe it. I can't believe that's possible. But it is. Many of what we see, many of the things that we see would not have, been, would not have had a spotlight thrust on it if it hadn't been for indignant, angry people of other races who helped push a specific conversation about Blackness forward along with us. Wow. We got to make space for them. We do. Wow. Um, Yazara is taking us on a journey. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, shit, I'm dealing with it on my own. I swear to God. Like, <laughs> no, we love it. We love it. That's what we asked for. Take yeah. us on a journey. Absolutely. Because, I mean, on the path of being a better person, like being a good person, beyond being a Black woman, beyond being anything, and, and I wake up Black every day, I, I, that'll never go away. I, I'm always going to be an African, those things. But on the path of being a person who was born to love, how can I say I am that and still hold on to some of this tragic energy towards white people? Hmm. You said a mouthful right there, Willie. I'm still working on it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't think it's done. But I'm not here to lie and say it doesn't exist, but I'm also here to say that if we can cure it for us all, not just us, but them, if we can work on killing that, then we can get to the real conversation, which is about economics, which is about class, which is about making sure that all of our children can go to college, that everybody can buy a home because right now there is a segment of society in this country that benefits from the fact that all we're thinking about is race. Some of us will never know what it's like to own a house and, and it won't matter what color we are. 
Whew, man. So let's uh let's get back to the journey. Speaking of journey, life after high school. What was yeah. your what was your next chapter? What was your next journey after high school? Break that down. The next, well, you know, part of what happened next happened because I went to Duke Ellington. Uh, while I was there, I ended up coming in contact with these two gentlemen who went to Howard University. One of them would end up singing background for Erica Badu, put a finger in that. I also ended up being in a band um, with some fellow students of, 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 of the school. And we started to tour DC. So I'm performing at places like Tacoma Station and the Warner Theater and we are absolutely underage. So we had to perform under a secret name to perform in clubs. I was about to ask at what age? Yeah, I was Man. 16, 15, 16 years old. And so, um, sorry about that. Let me put on Do Not Disturb so we can have <laughs> that happen again. Okay, all right, I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, we even performed on the Apollo. Unfortunately, that night I couldn't go because I was in a secret meeting with Andre Harrell, um, who had come to hear the group that I was in called In Time. And um, this band that I was in, however, we all auditioned to go to North Carolina Central University. And the whole band received full scholarships to this school. And I got accepted to Howard and some other schools. But when I saw my whole band got accepted to Central, I was like, and I don't want to study classical music anymore. I'll be 50 years old when I'm recognized, you know, especially at that time. I decided to go to North Carolina Central University, and that's where my whole life changed. Um, I got the call to sing with Erica. And while I was also there, I was in a music industry class with Fonte Coleman, uh, Pat Poober, I mean, Poober Jones, and Pat Douthit, who would later be Ninth Wonder, and Darian Brockington, who um, is probably one of this world's greatest R&B balladeers, uh, who was my choir brother at North Carolina Central University. And uh, I was part of the focus group for Who Is Jill Scott? So we would listen to these records and then tell them what we liked and so the professor who was there, Chip, had actually submitted a record that was turned down by Steve McKeever and them, and he was pissed. He, he made it his life's work to create a record that he felt would be better than Jill Scott's Who Is Jill Scott. And he was going all over Durham trying to find somebody to record this record for him. I kept telling him I could sing. He kept ignoring me <laughs> and would not listen to me sing. Um, I started singing background for Erica. He started to pay a little bit more attention to me. And so um, one day, Darian Brockington had me come into class and bring this demo I had recorded. And he heard me sing and he heard my pen. And he tore my record to pieces. He tore my record to pieces so badly, I cried in front of my class. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. Um, as a woman in my 40s now, I know sometimes people will rip you down so that they can actually have an opportunity to capitalize on you. <laughs> because they think that instead of coming from a place where they like, oh, you're amazing, their, their personal story that says you're gonna reject them if they just simply tell you you're great, makes them just decide to crap on it so that they can then come and rescue you from yourself. Put a finger in that, it'll, it'll come to you in the morning. But um, at any rate, I ended up going into the studio with this gentleman because he was my professor. And he also was the brother who was responsible for the baseline and Sugar Hills, boom, boom, that was my, my professor and he was brilliant and so he created this basic 
writer's camp of artists around myself, which was Fonte, which was Dee, which was Pat. And we would bounce music off of each other. We would just bounce music off of each other. Fonte introduced me to Parliament again and Bootsy and we would go to record stores where we could play the record. Remember you could go to a record store and you might be able to ask for the record and be able to play it or you know, sit with earphones and we would listen to all these records all day. So he would introduce me to you know, funk and I would introduce him to Miles Davis and Kim Burrell and he would introduce me to Radiohead. And so we would do these exchanges and all of us would come together and we would uh, rate people's records. Fonte would make people cry. He <laughs> and Ninth Wonder would make people cry sometimes with their critical ear, but they were always right. And so I ended up being a hook singer for the first incarnation of Little Brother, which was a group called Gimme. But I was the one that was in and out of the studio and always on tour. So I would kind of just float in and out, but we were all encouraging each other's purpose. So long story short, I put out my record, Hear Me. I'm on tour with Erica at the time. I'm going to school while touring with Erica Badu. And let me rewind. Um, when I auditioned for Erica, I auditioned on a Sunday. I, my mother and I had cleaned out our accounts for me to come to Dallas, Texas, because she was looking for somebody from Dallas. I did not say that I wasn't from Dallas. I just didn't say I wasn't from Dallas. <laughs> I auditioned on a Sunday and was on the road on a Wednesday. I learned 17 songs. And then I was out there on the road with her for seven years. I had a chance to arrange our mama's gun. Whoa, and whoa, I was arranging on my- Stop right there. 17 songs in two days? 17 songs, two days. Now it didn't hurt that I was already a fan. You know, so I came with a leg up. Um, but I bodied it and she kept me. And uh, what was always, what was very telling about the timing and how new it was for everybody is when I auditioned for her, I said, oh, Gap Band, You Are My High. And she knew the song. So she sung background for me while I sung, while I auditioned for her. And of course, I nearly dropped dead on the song. I was scene. about to say, you can't just gloss <laughs> over that and not tell us how you were in that moment. Like, oh, I nearly dropped all dead. Erica starts singing background like like did you stop or did you just whoa wait a minute now like how, how was well, you and, like and, and I think in my head I was like do <laughs> like bitch do you see what she's doing do you realize <laughs> that Erica Badu is singing background for you right now you know I just I think I, I wanted so much to impress her to show her that I wanted to be present to serve her, that I wanted her to see what I had to give. And, and I was in the room with Amir Questlove, which is just like being in the room with Fonte. So I also knew I couldn't, I couldn't mess up because I'd be the project, I would be the, the butt of a joke <laughs> the, the very next day. And which was, which was crazy, like Amir Questlove was playing drums on this tour, I used to corner his hair. I did not even know who the roots were. And I was out there with Amir every day. Wow. It was crazy. And uh, he used to let me watch his Soul Train tapes. You know, I'd watch Soul Train with him while I was cornrowing his hair on the bus. Uh, and long story short, I put out Hear Me. Um, I put it out in April. In fact, next month will be the 21 year anniversary of my very first record. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually going to drop it as an NFT. So that's a whole other conversation. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a whole new 
hustle. Like, you know, money my my great great grandchildren can eat off of. Your great my great great children, my great great grandchildren will be on your floor. Generational wealth. Yes, exactly. Generational wealth that we can keep passing. Um, and so I ended up opening up for her in Greensboro and I decided I needed somebody to kick a verse on it. And Talib Kweli was traveling with us at the time. And he heard me playing the song on the bus and was like, I'll do it for you. And so <laughs> sometimes I look back on my career and I'm like, did these things really happen? And you weren't, I think sometimes just sometimes you're so in the moment of something that's happening that you want to make sure that you're doing it so well that you don't even give yourself time to celebrate what the heck just happened to you. You talked about magical earlier when we were talking about the other <laughs> culture. Like mm -hmm. you had a magical life, a magical. This is like something we yeah. we write in the movie. Like, but you lit, you lived it. I lived it. I lived it, and I'm living it. The whole story is that you know later on when I would end up with Lenny Kravitz, I was selling real estate. I just divorced. I had a brand new baby who was like nearly at this time about a, about two and a half, about to turn three, maybe not brand new at the time, but I was selling real estate, not even working in music just to provide for him. I had to give it up for a while, move to New York. I wasn't even making music. And my old publicist calls me one day and is like, hey, um, Lenny Kravitz, these people have been searching for you for six months. Hold on, wait, and they need to come out there. I don't, I don't want to cut you off because I want to get in. I, we want to get into I don't want to cut you off, but. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> cause okay. I want to get down there. <laughs> okay. did, I, did I fast forward too far? <laughs> yeah, because I want to um, wanted to ask you uh, when you were touring with Erica, like what was, what did you learn by touring with her being so young? Like explain the, the, the influence and impact she had over your career and over your life yeah. being with her that young. Just so. Um, she was always home folk. I remember I wanted to quit school. No, actually not quit school. This is when I was, I was still trying to finish at the time. Uh, and I lost my funding for um, the dorm that year. And so I did everything I could to raise this money so I could go back to school. And I was singing background for her at the time. And so finally, you know, I said, well, who do I know who can help me with this? I've never asked a boss for money in my life, but I called Erica because she created such an environment that in a way I understood she, she would possibly pay it forward for me because she saw me like a little sister and that I had worked. I always worked to show her that I knew I was in the presence of a master hard all the time. And so I reluctantly said, Erica, can I get an advance? on $3,000 so I can stay in the dorm because I really would like to finish my degree. And she wanted me to finish my degree. She was like, well, you can leave it, you can stay. But she said, do you have a rich uncle? Maybe you can call. <laughs> she didn't just give it to me because she's wise. I'm sure everybody was asking her for money. But I said, I don't. And they're gonna kick me up out of here if I don't get this money. And I, I would like to, I would like to graduate. And she, talked to the comptroller and the next day there was an apple tree touring check in the hand of the comptroller who told me maybe you just need to go home. I'll never forget that. That's Erica Badu. Erica Badu. Erica. Yeah, I mean, Erica Badu listened to him to me and she also li listened to ratchet trap music. And, you know, uh, Erica listened to uh, everything from M2 May to ratchet trap and 
what I've loved is watching her evolve into feeling freer to be her best and most authentic and open self out in the open, not caring what anybody else says. She was always that person. But even as I watch her now, I see even a newer freedom and freedom for her. And she's always been, she's always been about living in that. And that's what I learned. Live in your own personal freedom. Don't don't look behind you in the rear view mirror or behind you at the audience to see what anybody else is thinking while you're living your life, the life you deserve to live. What's your favorite Erica song? That's a hard, that's, that's, that's a hard question to answer. I would say my favorite record. No, okay, okay. I mean, my favorite record is always gonna be Mama's Gun, but I'm gonna answer your question, but it's still hard. It's like asking me my favorite Prince song. I can't answer that. But I got you. I got you. <laughs> but I will say that the song that no matter how many times I hear it, it's like the first time I heard it and I cry fat tears is Time's a Wasting. Time's a wasting. Don't you waste your time, young man. It's this love letter she wrote to her son about growing up. You know, run, baby, run, run. Where you're running to, where you're running from. Just. And then that part where she says, you know, these things are going to happen, but at the end of it, she says, still, no matter what happens to you, smile. And then when she gets to that portion, it goes, oh, baby, we need to smile. And she says it over and over again. It's almost like an affirmation or a chant. And there have been times when that I needed to listen to that over and over again to be reminded that regardless of what slings and arrows I was handling, that I just needed to keep smiling. I just needed to keep channeling my energy in the direction of happiness. I remember watching the verses with her and Chill. And <laughs> that was magical. I was like, so yeah. I was still high from watching Face and Teddy Riley. Like that, <laughs> that night was magical. Like you're talking about sparks flying. I was at home like. I think I had a couple bottles that night, but we'll we'll get to that. In, on, on well, you know, that first <laughs> one though was magic for me. That, that the, the, the first one where they couldn't connect. Which one are you talking about? That's the one. I'm sorry, you know that was black. That that was great black history at its best because we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. True. True. You look like is Teddy Riley your cousin? Because I don't want to laugh at him. <laughs> Get mad at me. me or Willie? Which one are you talking about? Whose family is he? Because no, because your face was like, man, she's talking about Teddy. No, <laughs> no, he's not my cousin, but he's he. So Teddy I love New Jack Swing. Don't get me wrong. Oh my god! <laughs> but it was but watching those two love on each other as yes. black men, and then watching Joe Scott and Erica love on each other as black women. Because I've yes. never had a chance to hear that. Like they literally just had a whole segment where they were just talking about how much they love each other and admire each other and mm -hmm. how they respect each other's work. And, you know, it's funny because that era of music, which, I mean, is a lot different from this era of music, which I'm mm -hmm. gonna, I'm definitely <laughs> going to ask you about that too. But, mm -hmm. I mean, just the level of talent and creativity and originality Joe Scott being a giant, Erica being a giant, and mm -hmm. those two coming together, and that moment was just special. I was just like, man, this is this is. Yeah. And so, yeah. my my story, I don't I don't know Erica, but I grew up with a with a guy. So I grew up as a musician. I what do you play? Play, play drums. Oh, that, okay. 
Yeah, so I grew up in church playing drums, and it was this kid. We basically grew up together, saw each other all the time, blah, blah, blah. His mother was on keys. His father was on bass. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I never knew he was a singer. And so I remember going out to a club one night, and he was there, and he was singing, and he sung Prince. And I was just like, dude, I never knew you could sing. And it was Durant. I was like, man, I never knew you could sing. He was like, yeah, I could sing. <laughs> it, it, was just, it just blew my And you know how great of a vocalist that kid is. I was just That's like, not nice. yeah. Yeah. So going back to touring with Erica, and I want to dig back mm-hmm. into the story that you told where you had to get a job as a realtor, which was in a sense, stepping away from your art, which I know would have had to have been difficult because you've been doing it your mm-hmm. whole life. Whole life. <laughs> Just, you were a brand new mom. What was that experience like for you? Kind of walk us through that. Mm. Well, you know, first, my partner at the time, who was somebody who came to one of my shows two months after I married my ex-husband, he told his friend, I think this, he saw me on BET and he said, I think that woman's my wife. Long story short, uh, I was sleeping on his best friend's girlfriend's couch. And we ended up going to dinner and we're going to, to lunch where I spoke with my hands and told him I was married and that we never saw each other again. Um, fast forward to um, after I'm separated from my ex-husband, I discover I'm pregnant and I meet this brother for breakfast. And I had planned to say to him that I had felt mutually for him for many years. And so we meet and instead I'm meeting to tell him, hey, I felt mutually for you for years, um, but I, and I'm getting a divorce, but I'm also pregnant. And he says to me, well, I'm not afraid of your child and you should come to Brooklyn. Well, I didn't come to Brooklyn. Um, later on, I saw him and he was with somebody else. and. I was heartbroken and I reached out to him and we ended up meeting again because he said he, he felt the same. And long story short, we ended up together. We've been together since my son was six months old. But one of the first things that when we decided to be in relationship with one another, he does, he said, you know, I came from a household where I was raised by an incredible black woman. And I never want to see another incredible black woman on their head again. So I want, he was, he works in real estate. I want you to go to real estate school and I'm going to pay for this for you so that no matter what happens, whether you're with me or someone else, no human being, no man, no woman will ever leave you on your head again. I think it's so important to have the people in your life who see what you are, don't want to diminish you and who want to hand you tools. So real estate became my tool for reclaiming my life. And that took courage because I hadn't done anything that wasn't music before. But because somebody saw me and saw what I needed and then decided to invest in me, which has really been like the story of my life with Erica, with others, um, with my partner who didn't wanna see me diminished ever, put me in this position. And so I'm selling real estate for the top real estate company in the country, Corcoran. I'm selling houses, I'm helping people find apartments, and I was miserable. I was miserable. I had money, but I was barely seeing my child. I was not making any music. And 
my ex-husband called me one day and he said, look, I didn't support you in our marriage, but why don't you let me support you now? Let me, let me have our son. Let him come home with me to North Carolina and I'll teach him things that only a father can teach him and you can get back to doing what you were born to do. And then when you're ready, I'll bring him home. You can bring him home. Uh, I was devastated, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And I, I knew that because so often I see some of my sisters making their son's man of the house, um, responsible for them. And I saw my two and a half year old son feeling responsible for carrying the groceries up a four story walk up. And, you know, none of the money I was making, even though we lived in an amazing apartment building or we had these things was keeping him in a space where he could continue to have his childhood because it was never enough. And so I allowed him to go home to his father, which was really hard for me. But I said, let me, let me keep my baby to the end of his preschool year. And so <clears throat> a few weeks after that, I got a call from my old publicist who told me that Lenny Kravitz had been searching for me for six weeks. And sometimes um, we have to let go of something that's in our hand so that something else that you're supposed to have can land in it. And I didn't lose anything by allowing the father of my child to be a primary raiser of this, in this boy's life, to allow myself to shed my ego, to release my connections to what I thought other people thought I should be doing as a mother. And I, was a, I am and was then a great mother. Um, but my son also has an incredible father. That doesn't happen for everybody. I didn't meet my father till I was 14 years old. And so I let him go with his dad. And it was the very best decision that I made because it was the catalyst for me returning to music. The next song that I made um, while my baby boy was still there with me was Running with Raymond Angry, which was the very first, one of the very first songs written for the ceremony. That would never have happened had I not trusted that I was covered and divinely guided and that things were working out for me. I heard you tell a part of that story last night when <laughs> you said Lenny was searching for you for six <laughs> weeks, which I think is an amazing story. I'm a huge Lenny Kravitz fan as yeah, an artist, as an actor. I want you to dig into that story a little bit. And then of course, touring with him, which I know was awesome. Um, yeah. And I know he was also very close to Prince, but um, dig into that story a little bit for our audience because that's not typical. That That's not a usual story. And mm -hmm. you having had the success that you already had, but having found yourself in the place in between Erica and whatever other artist you were. In the meantime. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Kinda, can, can, can you dig into that story a little bit more, please? Well, also, <clears throat> before I go there, you know, it's not lost that in 2010, I released The Ballad of Purple St. James, which was considered for a Grammy in six categories. You know, I, I hadn't become a slouch on my own between working with Erica and, and you know, working with Lenny. It's just that I walked away from myself. And so I want to make sure I put that out there because um, there's something to be said about forgetting who you are. And for a moment, I did. I just, you know, I had this baby and I was dealing with these, these issues of, of mourning and trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do and what the most responsible moment was when I ended up with Lenny. So it was very important to me to be out there because 
I always, I always had a great deal of love and respect for his mother, Roxy Roker. And um, so it was really incredible to be in space with him. And then also, it was also a full circle moment because on my cover, my record Black Star, I'm actually wearing his pants. <laughs> in, the, in one of the photos, I am wearing Lenny Kravitz's pants, which I later found out. I've never told him I was wearing his pants, but I was wearing his pants. And um, not only in that cover, but also the cover that he, the pair of purple pants he's wearing on the cover of the Carnival record, I am also wearing <laughs> inside of that. Like, I guess the guy let me use them before he sent them to Lenny. And um, it's just so funny how the world just spins around. And when I signed to the record label, Three Keys, to put out Black Star, they were like, you know, we've, we think you want to be the next female Lenny Kravitz. That's, I, that's what you really want to do. And I was like, yeah, but they never let me make that record. That's a whole other story ever. Um, they wanted a, they wanted me to do what everybody else was doing and it got me what everybody else got. So fast forward, I auditioned for Lenny who, and it was a, a cardinal rock and roll moment um, at the wife of Boris Becker's house. Um, and he comes out shirtless with nothing but a pair of black leather pants on and the wind is, is blowing and he's sitting there. And um, we auditioned for him and it was just very fluid. He's definitely uh, the product of good Caribbean upbringing. And you can tell uh, because when you're with him, you're, you're basically in the presence of it's just a good brother. You know, you can tell somebody gave him some good brought up seed. And I ended up being out there and it ended up affirming everything that I had tried to let go of about myself that was good, you know. Um, I was able to find myself again in, in the fashion and in the music and in the places where we got to go around the world and to share that energy. And also what a lot of people don't know about Lenny is that, you know, he's also a minister of music. When you listen to the songs that he sings, they come from an inspirational space. And when he's performing, it's nothing for that man to get off stage and walk around with 10,000 people touching him like he's Jesus of Nazareth because he wants to give back the energy of love so badly that he's willing to walk around a bunch of strangers just to exchange the energy. Um, he wasn't, and it wasn't just an influence as much as he was a confirmation of myself and what I wanted to give to the world as a musician. And so it was really wonderful to work with him. And then um, one of the other singers She's the one that had the bright idea that we needed to dance as hard as we did. She was like, how are we gonna stand out? This guy has had three sets of background singers. What's gonna make it stick? And she was like, we need to dance. We need to study the Ikeets. We need to just, we need to dance for blood and sing for fire every time we get up there with him. And we did. And I think the turning point for me one day is when the, the stylist came in and said, you know, I see you, you know, I see that, that, that you're, you're going to be going somewhere. He said, Lenny walked into the, to our, our session yesterday and he says, I want everybody to look like Yazara does on stage. She's, she's, I want them to look like they're African gods, like she looks Damn. on stage. Okay. And it, it, it resonated so tightly for me because I used to get the shit beat out of me for it in DC. You know, it wasn't just how I looked, it was how I carried myself. And he saw that and he wanted other people, including himself, to look like that so they could feel like it too. And that was, that was so affirming because you can be in spaces with people where you are singing with them and they don't wanna see you do that. They don't wanna see you be that. 
to become to become your inner spirit to be yourself and to continue to encourage that and every time he had an opportunity to he put me out front um you know his live documentary just let go you know they interviewed me i got amazing camera time i know that wasn't by chance he was generous with his space um he let me sing with him on stage more than once. Um, I always wanted to do well with Lenny Kravitz and to do that, to be in Paris on stage performing and have that immortalized on film. All these things I really desperately needed because of all the stuff I had given away prior to being back in that space. I had forgotten that that shit was even inside of me. You know, and if I hadn't have said, if I had held on to my ego and been like, you can't take the boy home and I've got to stay here and I've got to be in this spot. I have to do what I have to do what I know instead of stepping into what I don't know. I wouldn't be here talking about the ceremony with you. You know, and he's the one that later called me up and said, hey, Madonna just asked me for your number. You know, <laughs> Can I give it to her? And I ended up on the road with him for four years, making amazing friendships. And I count him as one of them. And that doesn't, I don't take that lightly because that doesn't happen all the time. So, you know, I got to ask, what's your favorite Lenny Kravitz song? That's not fair either. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I'll say the one that was my, my the first that I fell upon. And there's so many. <laughs> and we bonded over Prince, which is the whole other conversation so please don't let me forget to talk about that because something really special happened as a result of that um my favorite Lenny my favorite Lenny Kravitz song to perform um go ahead you tell me yours and I'll, and I'll tell you mine <laughs> it would be Dancing Till Dawn I loved doing it because it was so electric and we would, and he would let us sing at the very top of our registers with our chests wide open. That was my, one of my favorites to sing uh, on stage with him. Also, there was some records from the Strut record that people, I feel like people slept on Strut and I don't understand why, um, that were amazing that we would do live. But lastly, it, I never, it never got old to do Let, um, let Love Rule. It never got old. There was an energy that, that coursed through people when he sung that song that was very, very special for me. And then the first song that made me fall in love with him, with his music, was It Ain't Over Till It's Over. I, I played it on repeat when I broke up with my uh, ex-boyfriend in the seventh grade. It got me through a major breakup at the age of 13. <laughs> so those are, those are classics. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite one, and... I've always loved the song, but there used to be a video and I can't find it anymore. It used to be online. Um, Tim and Prince, they were walking through the aisle up on stage to perform American Woman. Oh, uh, of course, man. I mean, now you talk about live. Oh, come on. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you feel like it, but I mean, if you want to, you know, give us a little snippet since you actually did perform the song live. <laughs> Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that to I'm gonna leave that to Lenny. But right. what I will do is tell you an incredible story of what happened after Prince passed. Um, Lenny knows how much I love Prince, and for years I used to do a tribute to Prince um, 
while he was alive. And it was always really incredible and telling to me that he never shut me down. I'm talking about live video performances all over the internet of me performing Little Red Corvette and all of his tunes. And then I would look up in the audience after a couple of years and there would be members of, the, of MPG who were coming to the show and telling me that he was aware of my work. So long story short, when I start working with Lenny, you know, we share our passion for Prince. He knows the brother, oh my God. When Prince passes away, his engineer gives Lenny his guitar one pair of shoes and a tambourine that belonged to Prince. And so Lenny comes to New York to um, take part in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's tribute to Prince. And I come because of course I'm like, there's a tribute to Prince. I know this isn't a regular show, but please let me just sing with you because he changed my life. And so right before we get ready to get on stage, he whispers for me to come into his dressing room and he hands me Prince's tambourine and his guitar and lets me put on Prince's shoes or try to put on Prince's shoes. My feet were actually bigger than Prince's, <laughs> which is crazy. And um, that encapsulates who Lenny is. You know, um, I always thought that was just the one of the most amazing things. And then his resident photographer, Mathieu Baton, who also was good friends with Prince, let me hold one of Prince's rehearsal notebooks because he was like you need to this energy is with you and you need to hold this now that he's gone and uh you know I sometimes look back on my time with Lenny Kravitz and say, and say to myself that period in time really did save saving maybe not the right word that period of time really did, did affirm for me that I belonged in the spaces I want to be in moving forward and that that I'm in now um it was an affirmation for me that he felt like I was one of them. So much so that he wanted me to feel that energy so that I could use it to prepare myself forward. Um, it was big for me. And a, a funny story is I met Prince at Paisley Park during his birthday party um, and Erica Badu was performing and I was still singing for her at the time. And I went and got a designer to make me very special black for that evening. And so I walk into Prince and he's in the rehearsal hall. And it had been an amazing like weekend. I went to Bible study over that Prince was having in the main vestibule of Paisley Park. And I was sitting next to Larry Graham and Fred Wesley, just mind blowing ass weekend with Prince. And so we've been seeing each other around the compound for some time. So by the time we actually got a chance to interface, there were a lot of warm feelings. We talking and I'm telling him how he changed my life and how amazing he is. And then we go in for a hug. And it turns out that we were the same height and heels, at least that day. And so we go in and clearly we were both going in for that, you know, put it there, a big tight hug. We bump heads. I'm not talking about just like any bump. I'm talking about like boom, bump heads with Prince Rogers Nelson in Paisley Park. And I felt a, a warm hot tear just trickle down the side of my face <laughs> as Prince did his patented. <laughs> he hated me. And cause I went to go give him a CD later and then Dami went to give him one and then he says, oh, I love, I love records here, give me, I'll take it. And so I went to give him my CD and he was like, I don't take CDs. Clearly I had triggered his ass because we clung tags. Um, but the number of years I was allowed to continue to, to I, I was allowed to tribute him. I was 21 years old when that happened. Years later, I started doing the tributes and he never shut me down. 
And then he also called for me to audition the same background for him once, but I was pregnant with Miles. So it just meant a lot to be in space with Lenny, which was to me like, you know, a junior iteration of Prince. All right. So I've been waiting to ask you this question because <laughs> knowing, getting to know you tonight, you are very, I don't like using the word humble, but you are very like level-headed. Like you're not, you don't seem like you're high, like above, like you've worked with Erica Bob do you've worked with Lenny Kravitz. You even said that Madonna had requested you and then Prince wanted you like, how do you like, how do you like not get, like a high like how do you uh, ma manage to keep yourself level-headed because even for the the young women and men that's coming mm -hmm. behind you explain to them how you can have this type of success at a very young age but at the same time stay true to who you are you know I'm, maybe it's because of where i started i started in the church you know everybody can sing there everybody's got a gift everybody everybody is a star you know it just going to performing arts school where there were other people who were really, really gifted. And so, you know, I wasn't the only amazing fish in the sea. I, I mean, nobody can be me, but me, but I was around a lot of really excellent people who, who also, I'm a cup, you know what I mean? I just, it comes through me and then I get to give it to you. It doesn't belong to me. It's, it's a gift that's given to me to share with others. And I think that that's, what helps. Now there's a persona that I fall into when it's time to get on stage where, you know, all that goddess energy and, and bad bitch energy definitely does step it's up. It's showtime. But and there are all and, and I also have come into a space now in my adult self where I can say there is something uniquely special about me and what it is I give to the world. But I can do that and my humility can still maintain the same space with my divinity. Like I can still be a queen, absolutely know that what I'm giving to the to the musical space is something beautiful and unique, that my voice is my own and that I show just as well as I, I prove just as well as I show, you know? Um, but there's sometimes when things come out of me vocally that I just know for a fact I wasn't responsible for, you know? Sometimes the way my pen moves, I'm looking at it like, wow, did that just, happen or the number of times that I can say, I just walked up to a microphone and freestyled a song that changed how I look at the world and now changes how others look at it. Mm. Not too oh. Google, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanna dig into the ceremony. Yes. Um, but right before we do that, I wanna piggyback off of what Willie just asked. How do you stay humble? when you've been exalted. I have a question on that energy when you go on stage. Mm -hmm. How do you come down from that night after night? Because I've, I've performed drums, but I've also done a little acting back in the day. And mm -hmm. I noticed that shift in energy and it's hard to come down. So I can imagine yeah. being around Erica, Lenny, Prince, going on stage and coming down from that how, how do you actually come down from that type of energy um there are a number of ways uh, let's talk about the first the first is physically this show adrenaline so you know i go get myself a hot meal i take a shower to bring myself down but i also meditate sometimes i take baths um 
because I like to deal in the spiritual space and it's all energy. Uh, I'll say this, when I used to perform early in my career and I would do like a stretch of tours, I would always come home sick and I would never understand why. Like just, I would be drained. And then I later uh, had an opportunity to work with a vocal coach who said, well, you know, when you're on stage and you're performing, people are beaming their energy into you. Their love, whatever those songs that you sing are making them feel, Thousands. their lust for you. <laughs> Thousands of people, their, their envy of you being there, but loving you. There's all these convergence of like serious emotions that are being beamed into you at the moment that you are opening up your soul to receive the music that comes through you into the world and into them. There's like all these different emotional and spiritual transactions taking place and it can actually make you physical, physically sick afterwards. And so I started taking specific baths, like I'll bathe in salt water, I'll, you know, smoke myself out in Palo Santo and it might be woo woo to others, but it works for me because when I sing on stage, there's a, there's a part of me that, that wants to feel every painful moment with my fans. You know, that some of the things that people have said to me that that music does, I had a song called Starship and, you know, it didn't, never failed the number of people who would say you wrote that song for me and they were beaming in their tears and their sorrow and their, you know, what they were excavating into me while I'm singing it for them. They don't know that that's making me ill. <laughs> you know, you look at people like Summer Walker who are like, I don't like to tour. That's why. You know, that takes specific grounding to be up there and to be on stage. That's why you got some of these young people taking Molly and all these other drugs so that they can deal with anxiety. But when it really is, it's energy. It's just energy. You're scared. Turn that into something. Meditate. But instead, they've been invited to take all these other things as these gateways to feeling better. For me, sleep, meditation, going to have a great meal, taking those energetic baths, releasing that energy in a positive manner is, is what I do to stay afloat. Yeah, I've always wondered about that, like going from being in front of thousands of people night mm -hmm. after night to coming down to just you in a room, like what type of psychological effect or energetic effect, but you broke it down nice and uh, mm -hmm. thanks for that. I also take Terrible. 30 minutes to myself before I sing, at least. Because after you get off stage, there are going to be people who actually want to meet you and touch you and greet you. And you can't, you can't give to people in that way unless you've given to yourself first. That's the metaphor for life, but definitely for the performer. Wow. The ceremony. Um, this is your third album, fourth album? No, this is my... This Let's count here. I think this is my fifth baby, but let's see. Hear Me, Black Star, The Ballad of Purple St. James, and The Ceremony. So this is my fourth. In between that, I have one EP called The Prelude. Okay. Mm -hmm. So four babies and half on a baby. <laughs> <laughs> half on a baby. I like that. So I'm going to tell you, it gave me Lenny and Prince vibes this album but it was, I can definitely tell you it tell it was your specific journey um I haven't been around artists for as long as I have you know you can just tell uh when something's coming from their personal experience versus someone else's other form so take us on this journey where did this start first song legend 
Legend was recorded in its first iteration in 2005. Um, it used to be my theme music because I'd say every hero needs their theme music. And so my band and I would I would come out to this, but it's first, the very first time that I, I wrote it, I wrote it with a girlfriend of mine. I didn't write alone, wrote it in 15 minutes. She and I are born a day apart and we literally finished each other's musical sentences. Um, her name is Inga Nandi Willis. And she wrote um, Twisted for Anthony Hamilton on Carlos Santana's album. If you've heard that, you got it all wrong, you got it all twisted. That's her. Um, Anthony Hamilton sung it. And so she moved to Durham and was disillusioned with music just as I was. And we, we went on a path of writing for other people. And so we were writing for Frenchie Davis, who was on The Voice. And that week, like we wrote, we wrote like 12 songs in seven days. It was really, really crazy. Like how we were churning out music. But when you're really linked with somebody like that, which is the same type of energy I have with Fonte, we just wrote songs and finished each other's sentences. Um, this song was one of them. And as I was writing it, <laughs> Inga looked at me and I looked at her and she was like, you know, this song really ain't for French. This song's for you. You know, and I said, well, you know, that's my sister. I'm gonna let her have the tune. But then the record ended up not coming out. And so years went by and I was like, I'm just gonna start singing it. Cause I think we did this in 2002. Um, I'm just gonna start singing it. And so I um, started singing it with my band of French and I talked about it and she agreed. And uh, then my drummer at the time, Biscuit Bynum had this amazing track that felt like it was home to this record. And so then I sung it again um, over their production. And then years later, uh, I decided I really wanted to hear it live. And so I went into the studio with Randy Runyon, um, Ruben Kaner and uh, Louis Cato. And if you look up those names, they are absolutely music and tour royalty. They're just amazing players. And so they replayed the record over for me. And then I uh, tweaked the bridge section to fit a, a new energy for myself. And um, it was so funny. I, I guess it was, it's, I guess it's biographical, you know what I mean? You know, heart of a champion, been through the storm, just standing there listening and I was reborn. You know, it was me talking about the places and spaces I've been. But I mean, by the time I wrote that record, I was in my early 30s and I still <laughs> had a story to tell even then. I hadn't even yet been divorced. Things were actually looking good. But before then, I still had a story to tell. And I think that it made its way into that record. And I said to myself, I was not going to put out the ceremony without there being a how I got over tune. So in essence, um, the ending of my story is at, is the top of my storytelling in the ceremony, which is why I started with legend. And then I got into creatures, you know, where I'm kind of reclaiming my right to just simply enjoying how amazing I am, we are. And when you talk about creatures, you know, we can get back to that conversation where everybody's trying to get back to this specific vibration. You know, you want to say I'm a monster, but, but then you kind of want to be me. You want a bite of this life. You want to taste this amazing part of it. You stay up late at night trying to figure out how you can get back to this vibration. You know, um, it's it's that portion of the song where it says, hey, yo, we better wet a trendsetters all about them four letters, L-O-V-E. Can't you see that's this where you should be, babe? That this is where you should be. This is where you want to be. You know, um, come crawl into the time of your life. You know, 
there's just something and a certain magic that we wield in this world that everybody wants to be about that vibration, that Rosetta Stone of actual cultural and spiritual greatness that we are. So that's creatures for me. And I had to get back to remembering that that was amazing and okay to say in the world out loud. Uh, drugs was the beginning of me telling the absolute truth about where my journey with finding and reclaiming my own heart started. And then I didn't want to keep running my mouth. I wanted to make sure you didn't have another question before I move forward, because I know I've been- Oh, no, 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 you're good. I, <laughs> I, 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 I like how you're going song by song, if, if you don't mind skipping around mm -hmm. a little bit. Not um, at all. So I'm really, really digging backseat of my star. That's one of my favorite records. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, look. I know the meaning, but the wordplay is amazing. But you got to break it down. I love, I love that song. I'm going to break it down. The truth is, so my partner, Takala, and I have a group together called MI7. And so um, MI7 stands for My Infinite Heaven. And over the last two years, two and a half years, we have been recording songs everywhere we've traveled in the world, from Florence, Italy to, you know, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, we've been recording songs together. And usually these songs are recorded in bed. So he will produce a song <laughs> and then roll over and be like, babe, wake up, record this real quick. And I will freestyle the songs first. The very first thing is on my mind. I start singing it, doesn't matter. And so he records that. And all of our songs are off my very first <laughs> idea. Um, we later maybe tweak them, but backseat was something that just kind of like <laughs> was boring on its own of a specific moment in our relationship, which I will leave at that. <laughs> but because I'm a little ratchet and because he's a Virgo and, and remembers that we do want to be role models, said instead of backseat of my car, he said, baby, why don't you say backseat of my star? And I was like, well, I'm real. I'm going to say backseat of my car. That's where it happened. I'm going to say it. <laughs> and he was like, backseat of my star, baby. So um, that's how backseat of my star was born. And then I later went and did another iteration of it uh, in the studio in DC, where I had a chance to like just really add in the background vocals and really pay attention to um, the spaciness of love when a person first connects with another human being like that, you know, Disrobe your cool, I wanna see you so better, make you feel better, there are no rules, just an ultimate universe where my love spells out release, courtesy of my vaccine. So anyway, you know, just, I wanted to weave. Whoa, 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 you can't stop right there, you can't stop. <laughs> you can't stop right there. See, Willie, I told you, I love, I love that song. Well, you know, I mean, it was it was so <laughs> so funny because sometimes I'll say to Takala, "Take off your pants so I can see you so better." So a lot of this, we're all these free game, with you know, free game to the wife, <laughs> free game. You know, a little bit Mary McKeeba, a little bit Cardi B. I've, I'm not here to lie about what I am. Um, and so I said, "How can I say this without being as literal as a millennial?" <laughs> and I wanted to. Create that now that we on the backseat of the star. Let me really think about this with more consideration. Um, and you know, sometimes when you're making love, 
it literally is like an out-of-body experience. And so coming from the perspective of that, um, I wanted to weave backgrounds that made you feel like you were floating in space. And so I hope that I accomplished that. I wanted to, I wanted for people to hear this record. And I think that MI7's purpose is for people to get back to celebrating um, the eternal crush. What it's like to love somebody and eternally crush on them. Um, we still slow dance to Wu-Tang, you know? <laughs> so um, the MI7 record is our attempt at getting the rest of the world to do that too. And Backseat of My Star was just my way of introducing everybody else to that idea of love, Black love in that way that's sensual and beautiful. We can talk about that without being so heavy and literal. I want it to be said right here, all listeners, all couples, make sure you put Backseat of My Star on repeat. All the arguments will stop. All the all the back and forth will, will just stop for, for a second. I got to queue it up now. <laughs> you got to queue it up. <laughs> Cue it up right now. And then yeah, follow we, we it up with Fly Me to the Universe. That's why I got Fly Me to the Universe right after it. You ain't got to stop the tape. <laughs> you just you can keep going. I literally just text my wife like, hey, listen to this album right now. Listen. Um, yeah, I know we're going to be responsible for some kids from back, between Backseat and Fly Me to the Universe. Um, they're both trouble. <laughs> Good trouble. But the, but the good kind of trouble. Yeah, the best type of trouble um, is one of the things I like about Fly Me to the Universe, uh, which, is, which is interesting because my mother is a songwriter, always been a songwriter. And every once in a while, she'll send me these voice memos and they're so adorable. And it'll be her singing something, you know, and she'll be saying, oh, hold me, baby, just anything. You know, she sings it on a voice memo and send it to me. And it's so cute to hear her sing these little naughty songs, right? Well, one day my mom sent me a heater at least the beginning of what I could make into something that was about to be ridiculous. And she said, she says, lay the pillow beneath my head, put my body on the bed, fly me to the universe. And I said, woman, <laughs> I think, <laughs> one, I don't wanna know you act like this, but I really appreciate this verse. And so, you know, my mother, who is a master educator, who, is a songwriter who was a woman ahead of her time, um, who didn't pursue it, occasionally talks about wondering where her legacy is gonna be in this world. And so it was important to me to, to use that verse. Cause it was one, it was a banger. Like it was, a, it was an amazing start. And two, it just felt good to give my mom her first writing credit in a record and to have her create a publishing name. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, then I, then I freestyle wrote the rest of the tune and then tweaked it. And, you know, then you have fly me to the universe and people who is um, from Senegal, you know, just made an amazing track for me to sing, sing over. And uh, one thing a lot of people do not know about the ceremony is one of the people contributed to all the mixes was Raheem Devon. Raheem was refused to let me quit. I was really talking about just quitting and scrapping the record one day. And he was like, well, what's, what do you need? What resources do you need? And he says, well, I have an amazing engineer who mix, mixes all my stuff. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna pay for your mixes. I'm gonna pay for your mixes. And, and if you need wow. to record some more, I'm gonna let you record because I was recording some things with him, duets, we had done um, roses together. And that's when we were talking about doing more music um, and also collaborating on possibly some other things. 
And he was like, so what's holding up? What are you doing? Like, what's holding up your record? You've been recording forever. And by this time, I'd be recording for seven years. You know, um, He was like, so what's the holdup? You know, I'd been paying for these mixes in between tours and using the tours to finance the record, which is why it stretched itself out for so long. But also it was great because it gave me an opportunity to live and to write about what was happening, uh, which is why you have the record you have. But to have a friend say to me, like, look, I know how much being sovereign means to you. I'm not trying to, to sign you or be your label unless you want that. But if what you what, what if what you, what you sincerely need right now is just somebody to invest in this record, then go on here. Sent me to his engineer. I was in the recording records. I was able to get these records mixed. And that's why there's a ceremony because somebody bet on a black woman and then didn't try to dominate her by taking her record from her. It's so amazing to hear about artists who don't forget where they come from and realize <laughs> that, you know, there was a climb for me to get to where I'm at. And then they can reach back and say, let me help the next person get to where they're at. And so I want to ask you, who are you crushing on as far as what we deem the newer artists that are out today that are putting out music? Man, some of them are new to you, but they're old to me because I, I, we've all been some of us in these circles trying to get it for a long time. One of my favorites is Anderson Pack, who used to be my music director in, in LA. Wow. When I, I got footage of him playing Change Your Mind that I was looking at today. He's playing a singing background, singing my song. It's just mind blowing. And um, that is mind blowing. Yeah, I love that brother. I actually just sent him the record last week and I was like, I need a quotable. So like, <laughs> waiting for my quotable. And um, we've done some, we've ended up coming in contact with one another on the road and he's just, Amazing, and I'm super proud of him. Um, I love her. I think yes, her, her is killing it. Yeah, I think she did an incredible service to R&B music and brought it back into conversation. Her artists like Khalid, um, these are artists that my son is listening to, and because he's listening to them, he likes to he wants to listen to Marvin Gaye. And now he listens to Phyllis Hyman. He loves, you know how to love. He's nine. <laughs> and because of these younger artists who are bringing back soulful music, um, people like me can be heard again. And, and I really appreciate that. Like I, I have the largest crush on people who bring folks back to music, like hip hop brought folks to Bob James. Um, who else? I mean, I love Duran, that goes without saying. He's he's family and he's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. Yeah. He's been incredible for ever. I remember when he was on YouTube and would send me like, you know, emails or, or in this case like a DM in MySpace where he asked me to send him the track for a record I had called Four Alarm Fire, and um, a record that I did on the Prelude called um, Where I Is, so he could cover it. So he covered. He covered my music and he covered Erica's and he put out a record called The Son of Badu. And that's how Erica found out about him. And he ended up singing background for her. So I've known Durant since he was chopping celery on his after school job. And to see him become this thing, not only just this artist, but a personality where people are finding so much strength because he is a queer male, because he is standing in his power in that way. I'm just so, I'm so proud of him for being himself unapologetically because 15, 10 years ago, when I became aware of him, there was, he didn't live in a world where he could exist. 
and now he is and doing it unapologetically and there are other people who can because of him. So I'm, I'm so freaking proud of him. And then on the side of, of um, female performers, there's so many, like the, the landscape right now, I really feel like there's an amazing music that's coming forth. And, I, and not all of my favorite singers are flat foot singers who have runs and do et cetera. Um, I love Jazz and Sullivan's new album, Hotels is incredible, but I also love to listen to Seza who just sings straight. And um, I, I love Summer Walker's live album. She has a song called Put It On Your Grave. Oh, love, love. For the longest time I had no one to listen to and now I do. It's funny that you uh you said your son listens to Marvin Gaye because yeah. I've been called an old soul. I'm I'm not really hip to a lot of mm -hmm. Alex knows this. I'm not really hip to a lot of new artists like rap and all of that. So mm -hmm. actually, one of my, my favorite movie is The Temptations because I love old school. Yeah. I love Stevie Wonder and my. It's funny. I remember picking my four year old up from school before the pandemic, and his teacher was like he's in here singing these old songs like you guys is to at home like yeah that's that comes from me mm -hmm. but i have i have two questions for you okay yes first question is it's it's a yazara movie being made <laughs> who would you prefer to play yazara that's the first question and the second question is i want you to give me your top five vocalists it's gonna sound horrible i i want to play myself okay <laughs> I want to play myself. Um, Which is smart because you are an actress. Exactly. So. Yes. <laughs> you know, I've been in, I've seen movies where Diana Ross played herself and she's one of my archetypes. Uh, I love how she did it all. She was a mother. She was a, a, a business mogul. She was an actress. She's everything. Um, my favorite singers right now. Oh, man. There's singers I love for different reasons. Um, there's a new singer that I love who sings this really amazing meditative music. Um, I'm gonna talk about her later. I'm gonna, I'm gonna name the people you know so that when I say her name, y'all can pay attention to her. Um, I love her. I love her as pen. I love her as attention to details and learning how to be a, a real instrumentalist. And she can sit down at a piano and she can craft a song that she can also get out from behind that piano and be sure of herself that she can pick up a guitar and, and, and play that. I love that. And I love everything about her. Um, Jasmine, I love because I've watched her grow. I remember when she and I did the Black Lily together when she was 14 years old and Rich um, had myself, the Jazzy Fat Nasties and Jasmine on the same show. And I was like, who the hell is this kid? And I was jumping up and down like a groupie. And I, the only thing I said to myself is they're not gonna know what to do with her. And it's so great to see her now having stuck to her principles as a musician and as a vocalist and winning, love her voice. I love Seza because I think she is, I think she's a pop artist and I wish we lived in a musical landscape where there wasn't any more race music, where everything got called R&B when there's a black person standing beside it. Um, I hate that and resent it highly. I think that race, that the R&B music was created to make sure that we didn't get a chance to level the playing field in rock, rock and roll, blues, and electronic music, as well as pop. So I think it's shitty that she's never been nominated for a pop Grammy. Um, started all that music anyway. Belongs to us. I could. That's a whole other conversation about appropriation. Okay. 
but I was also glad to see a black man. Um, I'm trying to remember his name, and this is crazy because I've watched his brother. He used to be he used to call himself Black Blackball Universe, and now he's um, weird Negro. He has a very revolutionary like Negro is in his craft name, but he he won a he won a, a Grammy this year for best blues album with um, Tank from Tank and the Bangers. So happy because only a year ago you couldn't get a black person on the on the blues category. That's a big move. Um, who else? Um, as a non-black singer, I really love Billie Eilish. I think she has an incredible pen. She's very soulful in her own way. Uh, and then uh, my most recent uh, obsession is this young lady whose name is Wata, and you'll find her on Clubhouse. Um, she's going to be putting out new music. I think she put something out recently. And if a crystal singing bowl and Bjork had a baby girl, this young black girl from uh, the Ivory Coast would be her. I love her music. It's soulful, it makes you feel good and it's different. And I really love seeing so many of us branching out of these ideas of what we do. Like black people don't make soulful music or black people don't make meditative music or black people don't make sonic music or black people don't play the singing bowls and, and sing soulfully over it. You know, even though uh, Alice Coltrane, you know, did that on a, on a posthumous album, you know, and you still didn't even see that nominated in a, in a, a new wave space. So I'm excited about her. And um, was that seven? I stopped counting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think that was six, but but you you got five though, right, Willie? Really? Yeah, but listen, I was I was listening to her. I was I like the whole list. Nah, she yeah, that's as long as she wants. That 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 was a great list. Here's here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. So as a as a vocalist, and I've always loved pure vocalists. But when you see artists who vocally, I remember my high school choir director said you know the spirit is willing but the talent is weak um, <laughs> i've heard that again <laughs> you're so you talented mm -hmm. no no it's just like you 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 work hard but you know it's but it's just not there when you see artists shoot to the top of the pops and you know uh, in your mind other artists deserved it especially at the mm -hmm. grand how does that make you feel as an artist who put so much time and energy into your craft and you're seeing other people get ahead because of many different reasons, whether it's skin color, connections, um, looks, you know, that sort of thing. And it's not, it's not about the music. I mean, it used to bother me, but it's none of my business. My job is to keep making the music I make and creating a landscape for me and my tribe to enjoy it and not worrying about letting a statue tell me how nice I am. And if it blesses somebody else and that's their platform, then that's great. But I feel like if you keep doing the work, especially now that people can find you and the, and the gatekeepers that used to have control over who found who aren't in place, I can care less who's doing this because I have an opportunity if I want to, to curate my own space and do this with my tribe. Not everybody's gonna love what you do. Music is subjective. There is some music that is made with a specific objective of being found and commercial in mind. I don't have a beef with it. In fact, what my job is to do is to find out how my greatness, my own personal commitment to my art, and that thing that if I wanted so much, 
can occupy the same space. Not to hate on somebody else because they found the amalgamation of things that gets them there. You can't do nothing with that. What's that energy gonna do if I hate them for getting someplace I think I should be? Then make, then get yourself there. <laughs> the energy I'm spending on being upset for the weekend or who, who didn't get nominated this year and pitched a fit like a three-year-old, you know, imagine all the artists who are amazing, who deserve Grammys, who, you know, every year just keep doing the work. That's what I do. I don't get upset anymore. Also, because not everybody's going to be a singer. There's some really amazing music out here made by vocal stylists, and we need to be able to allow that stuff to exist too. We just need to level the playing field. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hate. I mean, all that energy, man, you're going to block your own blessings. I ain't letting nothing keep me from where I'm going. Speaking of, so you just released this album. Yes. Right. <laughs> but, but you're not a one one dimensional person. You got multiple projects in the works. So talk about that. Talk about what's next for Yaza. I'm, I'm guessing tour is definitely on the horizon. But what other projects yes. are you working on? Um, right now, I'm actually working on a clubhouse tour. Funny thing, you should say tour. And I'm going to do a clubhouse tour. Um, so I'm inviting people to hit me in my DMs. And if they have a room that they think they would like for me to share two or three songs from my record in, I'm going to where the people are, you know? Yo, that is dope. <laughs> yes, service my tribe. You want me? I'm willing to come. I'm also planning to do a series of living room concerts, socially distanced for fans of mine who are tastemakers who um, want me to come to this city and perform for them in an acoustic setting. So that's happening and I'm doing them as ceremonies, you know, so we talk about various issues of, you know, various conversations about reclamation and healing and then I sing for them. So, you know, that's, that's what my plan is. Uh, also protector of the gods, you know, this week I have my uh, session to do my animated voice of Shekmet. And I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm very excited about that. I'm working on several musical projects. One I just did, um, the MI7 project is, is crazy. And it's a side of myself that people don't really get to see. I'm rhyming on that record. I'm talking about some very specific subjects. Some of them are amazing and peaceful. Others are, are extremely ratchet, um, but I am being myself. Uh, and with in concert with my partner and we're talking about love as we see it and I think that's going to be a really special album for black folks uh, another record another series of songs I did with an amazing trumpet player named Brandon Woody would remind you of the freedom suite with Abby Lincoln and Max Roach um, and these songs are no shorter than like 19 to 20 minutes so they're songs in several movements and so they'll be released in a visual series because you can't just drop a record like that you got to give it something so that people can experience it as well as hear it and I'm very excited specifically about a record that we wrote called Breathe Freely uh, which we made at the height of the pandemic um, and we had to make it live but in separate rooms and what was really incredible about this record is when we met into the in the main studio you could tell that everybody was holding their breath even though we were wearing masks because we were afraid of breathing the air that belonged to one another freely and i felt that 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 energy almost instantly and we were doing the sound what was supposed to be a sound check that ended up turning into a really powerful song called breathe freely um, where i talk about the right that we have as, pe as people of color to breathe freely in all spaces, to take back 
you know, especially when folks talk about I can't breathe, like I can't, what you give energy to expands. I can breathe. You're not stealing my breath with every free inch I'm living with on this earth. I am going to breathe freely. So that record to me is an opportunity for us to have conversations about anxiety, about fear of being in space with one another, but also about our right as people of color to be free in all spaces. And so each record that we did kind of piggybacks on this idea of um, reclamation of our right to be happy and to be free in all spaces. And then lastly, I'm working with, um, well, actually two things. I'm doing a three song EP with my son, who is also a would-be producer and has three tracks that he's given me that we've worked on together. And he, that he just surprises me with his ear um, that I'm gonna be doing. So he and I are gonna release a, mom, a mother and son project together. And then I'm doing one with another friend of mine where he's a drummer and he and I uh, have three tracks that we're doing, but in between them, he's gonna be doing solo stuff and we're gonna be trading my voice and his drums with production. Uh, his name is Swiss Chris and he's played for everybody from John Legend to, um, man, I can't, I can't think about everybody right now, but look up Swiss that's Chris. Gonna a, that's gonna be a dope track. I've never heard that concept. That's yeah, and it's all hip hop. It's all hip hop and um, soulfully, I guess what you would call what they're calling now alt R&B ideas. There's lots of guitars and electronic and, and, and um, synths and it's us and two other um, younger brothers who are producing along with us. And I'm really excited about it. I'm really, really excited about that. That and MI7 are my two focuses for the summer. What do you think about EDM? I love EDM. I mean, I, I grew up going to phone parties in DC. Like, <laughs> you know, there isn't, I mean, I love country music. You know, I, I could listen to Dolly Parton whose pen was vicious and people need to like, country music tells such amazing stories. EDM is just an energetic opportunity for you to get this energy out. You know, it, it is a powerfully energetic tool. And uh, I just want to see more of us in it. One was more of us being celebrated in the space is a better because we're we're influencing everything. It's just like they fly us to Korea to make K-pop. So this has been incredible. Um, I wow, this has been fun. What first off, before I close this out, Willie, you got anything? Yeah, I have one more question. I don't know if uh if you ever thought about it, but looking at your life now, your journey. Have you ever sat back and thought like, man, where would I be without music? Like who yes. would Yazra be without music? Not here. That's a great question. Not here. Not here. By virtue of the experiences I was having, um, specifically as a child where I was being bullied to the point of wanting to die and was suicidal at the age of seven, you know, having to get my stomach pumped from the level of bullying I was experiencing from my own people who look like me. Um, no, music saved my life, period. End of story. Duke Ellison School of the Arts having a place to hone that skill and to be in space with other people who were like myself and just be able to concentrate on being great um, saved my life going out with Erica Badu and allowing myself to spread my wings instead of staying at the time in, an in the oppressive college environment, which it was becoming because I tried to do both. Stepping out on faith and making that music is why I'm here. 
you know, going out with Lenny Kravitz and letting my son go someplace else so that I could actually be a self-actualized human being in his presence saved my life. That's it. Wow. Real quick, last night I heard you talk about ayahuasca. Yes. I saw the ceremony. So there's a show that I like to watch on Showtime. It has nothing to do with that, but they had a, a, a part on it where two guys were in a tent with a shaman and they were having that. And uh, I, I honestly didn't know what it was at the time, but I heard you talking about it. And you also yeah. talked about meditation. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a little bit more context on what that is and what that does for cleansing and healing? I think anytime you get a chance to steal your mind, at least for me, which is hard because I have all these ideas going on between these two years, there's a lot of things that are happening that are incredible. Um, some of them are also things that lies that I tell myself about myself that I have to decipher through and meditation helps you to like calm down what they call that monkey voice. The monkey voice is the voice that tells you stuff that's not true. <laughs> that, you know, when they say idle mind is the devil's workshop. Meditation is to quiet the mind so that you can focus your energy on the stuff that can build you. And sometimes, you know, it's just like when you were in, a, in the car with your parents and you were playing your music up loud and they said, can you just, can we just sit in silence for a moment? I don't know if that ever happened to you, but it used to happen to me because I love to play the radio in the car on the way to school. And my mom would be like, can you just, I just need 20 minutes of silence. And I would be outraged, but now I'm the mom that says, hey, let's steady our minds. Let's just take a few minutes to go underneath the surface where we can hear our thoughts clearer. You know, that's what meditation does for me. And it doesn't have to be all super woo-woo. Sometimes it's just a song that brings me into the quiet of, of the space for myself or going to the park and, and sitting beside a lake and being by myself. Sometimes it's just curling up with, uh, with my sweetheart and watching a movie. Meditation is very different things, but it's taking a moment to be still and allowing that to be okay. And as that stillness happens, you know, thoughts will come and they will go. But when you're sitting in the quiet with yourself or whatever gives you stillness, it gives you an opportunity to allow new ideas to come, to let other things that need to be breathed out of your space go. You know, I recommend anybody who comes home from work, if you got kids who are old enough to make themselves a meal and wash some dishes, you say hello to them, you walk your behind up the steps, you close the door, you take 20 minutes to just breathe. And you recommend it for them too, because children who meditate become people who have a better opportunity to be able to hear their thoughts too especially with all these tablets and video games and Roblox and stuff around, they need it just as badly. Um, I have to force myself sometimes. Oh, dude, the things my son did for Roblox this summer, man, nearly got him killed. For real? <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Mom, can I have nine Roblox? Have you ever, did you ever do the math on how much Roblox costs? I'm not going off on a tangent, but what I realized was what it became to children during the pandemic was an opportunity to connect with one another. It became what they thought was meditation, but it actually became an addiction because you're on there and they have Prada, they got Gucci, they have all these things on Roblox for these babies, okay? And in order, Robux 
in regularly. You know, yeah, Alex face when you said that. <laughs> yeah, the kids playing for Gucci on it. Um, and so they're buying these NFTs for, in, for lack of a for, for a real technical word, and it costs nine dollars and ninety nine cents to get forty five hundred Robux. And they may have a Valkyrie helmet on there that costs 54,000 Robux. And these babies are losing their minds if they can't wear the, wear the right thing so that they become the big person on campus in a cyber world that doesn't even exist. That's a scary thing. So part of meditation is put you in a space as well to still your mind so that you can decipher the truth from the lies because that same thing happens to us in the real world you know um i became more understanding of it from my uh, for us when i watched my son going through that am i enough i'm not enough let me make sure i can buy these like new new balenciaga tennis shoes that they put on roblox today so i can <laughs> be the big dude in X world in Roblox. Meditation helps us ground that energy that says we're not enough. Silence those voices that make us feel like we need things that we don't. Um, and for me, it's imperative because sometimes even in this business, you can become, you can fall into the, the sin or the illusion of comparison. One person's reality as an artist versus your reality. And are you doing well? you know, because they're doing better, you know, are you not doing well? Meditation helps me to remember who I am. I hope I made another sense. Episode. No, you're, <laughs> no, you made a lot of sense. And that's another episode in and of itself, because I've always wondered behind the scenes, especially touring, mm -hmm. um, what that experience is like. But even as a solo artist, the comparison and you might not do it yourself, but media is doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Social media is doing it. Derek, I, I, in fact, yeah. uh, I think it was Wednesday, uh, I saw somebody write, you know, uh, this artist is better than this artist, or this <clears throat> artist eats this type of artist for breakfast. And I'm like, see, that type of comparison, and I know it wasn't meant to do that because we're all musicians and artists, but it's just like somebody else could take that one way because they're also an artist and they're comparing themselves to those people mm -hmm. that you're mentioning. And it just becomes this big, uh, this big cycle of like, like you just said, it doesn't allow you to exist in your own space. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you let it, if you let it, it will. Um, I can't be you, you can't be me. What I'm here to give, I came to give. What you came to give, you came to give. And yeah, this industry can really make people feel like there's only a few of us that can make it and that you know we have to fight for our spots and that's scarcity. And that's another gift given to us by white men to keep us from building bridges, period, period. You have to really, and it takes a while. Like the conversation I'm having with you now is not one that all of a sudden I woke up feeling like I was enough. And, and, and some mornings I still wake up not feeling like I'm enough. The difference is 
I know how to remedy that in, that feeling. And I also know not to make any sudden moves just because I'm feeling that way. How many people go to visit their brother or sister-in-law and they look around their house and they feel like they're not enough because their family member has able to be, been able to buy a house, but they can't. You know, there's, there's always going to be something shifting your focus towards not being grateful for what you got. And for me, on just a human level, because it's so easy with all of these shows that show who's living where and who's driving what and who's bone and who, because they have all that stuff. It's very easy to absolutely forget how blessed you are. Ooh, man. Uh, I don't even know where to go from there. I think that's a perfect segue um, to close out. But before we do, um, you just gave so much, but. I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> oh, no, no, you were great. You were great. Um, first off, thank you for taking the time out of your night to come sit down with thank the Black Culture so Podcast. Thank you. You, so you gave me an excuse to get dolled up, and these days I don't get too many. So, <laughs> okay. First off, did you enjoy yourself? Of course. I've been sitting here nursing my little glass of wine, and you guys gave me an excuse to open up my Cali Red 19 Crime Snoop brand. Ah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so, today, so thank you. Nineteen. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> so he just had. <laughs>